Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, ladies and gentlemen. If you're still with us and you're not sleeping after the eight-hole playoff that the Travelers took us through, uh, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? Uh, we had a crazy week in the LPGA, the PGA, and uh, some crazy news on the world scale, too, which we'll get into here, Dante. You had some craziness of your own this past weekend. It was Running Deer's member, or not member guest, it was their club championship. So you were yes. locked in, you were locked and loaded. Uh, we've had Steve Barry on the show before. He played in it, as well as Andy Kay, who we've played with out there a couple times at Running Deer as well. And I'm sure a lot of other good sticks out there at Running Deer. Um, you had good weather. You had hot weather this past weekend. So, um, you know, we can touch on that as well, this podcast, but guys, we've also got Josh Sedeno. So if you were following along the last couple episodes, we had Katie Kuzma and her intern geo on the show to talk about everything Kuzma sports agency related, um, as they dive into what is a crazy world on the sports agent side of things, they represent Josh Sedeno. So, they hooked us up with him, uh, previous PGA Tour Latin America card holder. Uh, when COVID kind of hit, that got sidelined as, you know, no one was able to travel outside the country and whatnot. So he's playing up in the Dakotas Tour. So, Dante, that was news to me and I think to you as well that there's a pretty pricey yeah. tour up there. There's some good purses for these guys that are playing in these mini tours up there in the Dakotas. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like he said, it seemed like if you can have a couple – few good weeks i mean you're going to be making enough money to you know get in your next events be able to pay for your travel expenses and be able to not have to eat you know pb and j's and ramen noodles for a week straight um kind of set you up to basically put some money in your pocket and put it away to help get you to that next level because from what we talked is these guys can absolutely play i mean we've seen this scores we've seen 20 to 30 under um, these guys put up in like, you know, four rounds or whatnot from all the way to the Dakota tour, all the way up to the corn Ferry tour. So if they can get themselves some money in their pockets to get themselves to the next level, to be able to pay all those high expenses, like this is the tour to get in. Absolutely. So, I mean, he dives into it as well, but like you touched on, it's, it's the preparation to hopefully finish the Dakotas tour and go on and make some Monday qualifiers in the corn Ferry tour and make some, make something happen. Right. Um, he's a Bama alum. So roll tide. Uh, we'll get into that after uh, our kind of back and forth here on the show. So look forward to that later in the podcast today, ladies and gentlemen, but uh, first Dante, we got to talk a little bit about this eight hole playoff between Harris English and Kramer Hitchcock. So you didn't watch much tour golf this week. As we said, you played in your member guest. I mean, in your club championship, I'll get that right. The third time around, I promise. Um, the PGA tour was just loaded. I think this weekend with phenomenal golf, uh, travelers championship. We saw a very familiar face, Bubba Watson, who's won the tournament three times already was up there and knocking come Sunday afternoon. It was really cool to see Bubba in the mix. Yeah, I did love to see that. I did catch, um, as my, as like you said, I was in playing my club championship. Um, I got bumped up to the championship flight. They played it all the way back. Um, not too often. I decided to play all the way back there. So I think my mind was so focused on basically trying to survive rather than just enjoying <laughs> that moment, but I, I didn't survive. Um, we can get into it a little bit later, but uh, I did catch the fact that, you know, Bubba was like really playing well. And then I did see his mishap where he just snapped his driver. The head just completely fell off. And he like, 
He's like, where'd it go? And it's up by the green and he hits a pitch shot and makes birdie. One of the best birdies of the tournament. And I think one of the most bizarre birdies of the year so far. Yeah. Cause I mean, even the camera got caught shook, you know, when they do like a, I don't know, like a fake pass or something in sports. And then the camera just like, like, Oh, <laughs> gotcha. And the next thing, you know, that was the same way. It was just, everybody's like head diverted to the right. If you're looking down the line of like Bubba Watson, cause that's where the, club head went and then next thing you know everybody's like well where'd the ball go and luckily this sh- uh the top tracer was there so you can actually see where the shot was going it was so. crazy bubba didn't even know where the ball went like no. he he knew where the head went because he watched it fly into the crowd and thank the lord nobody was hurt but when you when you don't even know where your own ball went it's pretty crazy to see it go about 280 right down the center of the fairway and he cured it as good as as good as it could have been I mean, if that if that doesn't tell you like how good these pros are, I mean, <laughs> I feel like that just right there, let alone just shows the talent that these guys have and the ball striking that they, you know, just produce. Oh, absolutely, and and it's just like we talked about this with with Josh too, Josh Sedona, who we'll have on the show a little later. How good, or how little, I guess you could say, the margin is between these guys all 125 out there like anyone at any time we talk about this on the podcast all the time let alone just talking about it with josh at any point in time there is anyone in this field that can take it stupid low and just come out of nowhere and win a tournament and we almost had that happen this weekend too before we get into talking about the playoff kevin kisner shot a 63 not once but twice this weekend he shot 70, 74 to start out the week, but finished with a 63. I mean, he almost backdoored himself a win here, let alone, you know, a, a shot at the title with these guys playing in the playoff. But Kevin Kisner was balling this weekend. That's insane. And, and it's awesome to see, too, because, you know, he's not like the longest of guys, but he absolutely just like the man can score. And when he's on, he's on. And when like it's, and isn't it, his putter is like the best club in his bag. And when he that's hot, it's like filthy hot with the putter. Just watch out. He, he is another one. Now I'm not comparing him to Jordan Spieth because Kisner doesn't seem to have the, the lows like Jordan Spieth does when he's really missing. Kevin's just so steady, but when Kevin gets hot, he's like Jordan Spieth where they make like 35, 40 footers look like five footers to us mere mortals. And mm-hmm. they just pour it in from everywhere. That's just insane because, I mean, you and I, you know, we, we get these 20, 30 footers. We're just trying to get it inside three feet at best. Just get it into the circle just so we don't have to worry about three putting. And these guys are probably thinking, I'm going to make this and I'm going to walk off with the rarity. There's a hundred percent of it, I do believe, that is mental. Obviously, oh, absolutely. There, there, there's, you know, but between tour pros, uh, obviously a differentiator between technique and what putters are using. And we see guys switching different styles of putters, blades, mallets, uh, styles of putting, you know, setups, arm lock, whatever, and left hand low. But at the end of the day, no matter what technique you have, you have to have the confidence to where you're setting up over the ball saying that that cup down there looks like a freaking basketball hoop compared to the rest of the field. Oh, without a doubt. And I think that's, I mean, I feel like that's something you have to have. I mean, it's, I, I again, we've had this discussion before. It's definitely a 90% mental 
aspect. You have to go up to the putt knowing that in your mind you're going to make the putt, even if it's completely across the other side of the green. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going in that just kind of the the fault that I did trying to survive, you're going to end up failing. Well, and I feel like kind of segueing into this playoff, that trying to survive mentality is what maybe was Kramer Hitchcock's demise at the end of the day in this playoff because he's never won a tour event before. His second place finish here was the best finish all time for him as a tour pro. And Harris English won already once this year. So now don't get me wrong. Both guys, as they got into the playoff, were just back and forth making incredible up and downs, incredible putts for pars to extend and just, just some ballsy playing, you know, that, that this, this playoff could have been two, three holes, but each guy, when they had the opportunity to extend, like muscled up and said, this is my time and and made the putts necessary to push the match. It was, it was really incredible to see it go back and forth the way it did. And I mean, playing eight holes, when you look at the final leaderboard, you know, the playoff number says 32 and 31. These guys almost played a full nine a whole extra holes of golf to figure out this golf tournament. Dude, that's, you know, what? I, that's awesome. I, I love to see that because that really put, you know, puts it in perspective again of how good these guys are, but also it's like, let's put them to the test. I mean, these guys were just grinding out 72 holes of golf and, you know, in the heat, middle of summer, and here you go now where, oh, yeah, you're about to play almost another full nine, not knowingly, (laughs) not knowingly that they're about to be playing another full nine, a new nine. And it's just so cool, one hole at a time, right? Like, it's not like a U.S. Open set up in the past where they they immediately knew stepping off the 18th hole, if they were in a playoff, you're going to play 18. Right. Like yeah, you're stepping you into a sudden hole, it's no big deal. Yeah. You're stepping into a sudden death playoff where I could play one and go home. I could play three and go home. It, it depends. Right. No guy thought they were almost going to get an extra nine holes of golf in. And I loved the PGA tours media really focused in on the caddies afterwards too, which I thought was pretty cool. Giving them some respect. Cause you don't think about it. These guys carried the clubs for all four days. They're out there in a hot Sunday afternoon, carried 18 holes of golf figured, all right, maybe one more hole. I have to hoof it. These poor caddies had to carry these bags around for an extra nine holes on the Sunday afternoon too. That's a lot of work for those guys. Oh, definitely with those giant bags. I mean, and think of this too. They probably prepped themselves and their player to hydrate and enough food consumption in their bag for Mm -hmm. 18 holes. So now you're saying I got to go another nine. You know how probably they beat they were being like you know i don't know maybe the peanut butter and jellies they <laughs> they were out or i don't know if they're fruit and nuts or whatnot they're gone out of that like they have no yeah. food and god forbid you get through like five holes now you're starving well i will I mean, say it's just dinner from kind time of, i will say just from kind of watching tour events in the past and being there in person uh they do those tour tents they have at like the first hole the tenth hole they do have like bananas water yeah. whatever but you got to think too these tents were probably cleared clean because they were ready to get the heck out of there after a Sunday evening. They were ready to pull the tents out of there well, and think just go of, home. Think of, all right, so you got all the crew. So you got the final group rolling through 10, right? If you say there's like a kind of like a halfway tent for these guys and the final group's now on 11 and 12, 
they're closing up shop just like you said so they're not going to come back around and then it's you're going to be you're scrapping for scraps 100 percent. no absolutely so i mean it's just cool that it, this this playoff brought a lot of um cool talk i thought to the twitter world obviously we're trying to get more interacted on twitter so guys go follow us there at enjoy the walk pod um it brought a lot of really cool talk of like half it was 50 50 which i thought was really cool because there's not too many instances where you get a truly split like personality on twitter a lot of times it's just 100 percent one way or 80 percent, 20 percent. it was 50 50 people were half the people were saying man this eight hole playoff it's boring we need to reformat golf playoffs and then the other half was just like man oh man i almost wish every playoff was at least nine holes give these guys like a true chance to like show that they aren't just like a one shot in the dark like in the nfl playoff whoever scores first wins like give these guys nine holes to truly be great. Right. So yeah. I want your opinion. What do you think? Do you think both could be like one end of the spectrum, like devil's advocate? Yeah. We need to reformat how we do sudden death playoffs or would it be really cool to see the PGA tour go to a nine hole format? If they had the time, they'd most likely have to bump up tee times. If, if that were the case, I definitely think they should at least do three, six, or even nine hole. I don't think you should do it just one and done because you have a bad hole, but that's how golf is. You have 18 holes to play to make your make up the score. So why is one hole going to determine the outcome of everything? All right, cool. You have a bad hole, but there's opportunities for you to either continue playing bad or you're going to make up ground and get yourself back to, to red figures or even mm-hmm. R. So I think nine holes would be, for me, loving to play as much golf as possible. I would love to see nine holes. But a three-hole or a six-hole playoff, I would probably, I'd probably meet in the middle and do six holes. I'm a big fan, and I'm, I'm looking it up right now, so bear with me, listeners. But I think it's the Open Championship that goes to a three-hole playoff aggregate, I believe, and I'm a big fan of that. I'm a yeah. huge fan of that. Um, it's just something where, like you said, I don't think one hole should define it. Um, I also don't think nine holes is the answer, especially with just already playing an, a, a basically 72-hole event. You, you know, these guys are already beat. They got to go to the next week if they're traveling from tournament to tournament. You don't want to keep them there till dark on a Sunday if they're already there past dark. And then if you can't get the nine holes in, then you got to play Monday and then it just drags out and becomes this whole thing. I think yeah, three I, holes is the money. Yeah. And I get it too. I get it. There's it's major networks and they have other programs that they have to put on and ratings and viewership and not everybody's watching golf. Right. So like, now you got to cut into the, the previous or the next program's time if you're going over. So I get that aspect of it, but on a golf side of thing, I, I think it needs to be more because here's a uh, hypothetical, right? Like say you and I are on there and we're, we're playing, right. And we're playing a par four. And, you know, I put one kind of safely middle of the green and you get lucky and you, I don't know, say you're like 80 yards out and hit a great drive. You're 80 yards out you stuff it eagle game over like like i mean that's great great shot and all and it's like dang like that's like a dagger in my heart like congrats to you but man i didn't get to basically even play 
to now where to I'll be point. where I'll be massive devil devil's advocate on that yeah. point only because <laughs> we talked about this exact scenario last week when we covered the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. You loved the fact that there was a buzzer beater chance on eighteen there, Torrey yes. Pines. So. All I'm saying is there's a phenomenal opportunity for buzzer beaters and we're all for that. But then there's also when, when there's a, I don't know, there's just such a greatness. There's such a great opportunity for great storylines in both scenarios. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm twisting my, my opinions <laughs> around and you caught me him. on it. But I got him. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just think there should be more like on a sudden death. I can I feel like I'm just going to get called out regardless, but the sudden death buzzer beaters are great. Oh no, not sudden death. I don't know. I like the buzzer beaters, but I think in a playoff setting, I think there should be not just one hole. Yeah. I'm here for it. And, and so I I was looking it up. I was looking it up, right? I said the open championship. I was wrong. It's the PGA championship that goes to a three hole aggregate. They typically do the 10th hole, the 17th hole and the 18th hole. That's the way they're set up. So now as we're covering playoffs and how they could change it around, an interesting Twitter thread was really going off this one point. What if, you know, the, the last person to hold their putt on 18. So if, you know, it's the last guy in the last group, they get to choose the hole and it goes back and forth. So first hole, you know, last player to hold the, the tying putt or whatever, he gets to choose the hole they play. And then vice versa, next guy, and it goes back and forth. So instead of just typically playing the 18th hole over again, which everyone just watched them play in the first place, your your last guy gets to choose the hole. Hell, maybe we go out the hole six. Who knows? You I mean, know, shoot, whatever if you it had... is. Did I make did I make three birdies in four week in four days? I'm going to hole six, baby. That's what I'm I, doing. I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so different from uh the NFL where they decide to either receive or kick to give themselves advantage in the, in later on in the game mm-hmm. and with the wind blowing too like it gives them there's a strategy to their madness into which whether they want to receive or kick in which direction they want to go so i mean if like you said whole six was whole six was your bread and butter throughout the week and i have a chance to beat this guy on like and i get to choose the hole after we just tied or whatnot yeah i'm going to go I'm going to pick that hole and go play. make your money now, all day long. Exactly. I know the chance I'm going to, I'm going to win. So I think that'd be kind of cool. Set it, set it up. They might be doing a lot of driving. I think that's why they do the 18th so they can just drive back real quick. And I then again, right. it all comes back to the TV time and the coverage to get, they're trying to find a winner as soon as possible. Yep. And, and I, sucks, I, I but think as, that's what it boils down to, right? Is um, this coverage even got kicked and you had to go to your NBC live to go finish watching the playoff and whatnot. So it is, it's all about TV time at the end of the day. Um, but congrats to Harris English, phenomenal playoff. I mean, you could not have scripted, I think a more exciting way to play eight holes. It wasn't like these guys were just making ho-hum pars and getting out of there and going to the next hole. Right. I mean, they were, they were just, they were scrambling. At times, neither had birdie looks, and both were trying to get up and down for pars, and they both oh. did. You know, it was just it was really cool to watch. Uh, it neither guy had a straight head on their shoulders the whole playoff, which was you could tell the nerves were really kicking. Yeah, and which is awesome. And at, when you see, you know, the you know we talk about how the U.S. Open wants the the guys to kind of basically see the best players win, mm-hmm. and you know we we it's carnage and we want to see these guys basically 
win at closest to par and it's constant of them grinding and getting up and down yeah and then everybody's like ah it's a little boring to watch throughout four days but i think like you said i think it's exciting to watch on a playoff setting because these guys are it every shot really does count and i think that's just awesome to see i i mean i know i missed it but i would have loved to see them just constantly like grinding it up and down just to oh am i going to be able to survive this and get the you know, tie this guy and continue trying to win this tournament. Yeah, it, it was fun, man. It was great golf. It was exciting golf to watch. It made a tournament where I feel like Travelers is just not the most watched golf tournament in, in television history, obviously. And it made it like, oh man, I, I can't peel myself away from it. I, I gotta watch this right now. And it was it was mm-hmm. cool. It had a lot of people talking about it, uh, which is what you want out of a ho-hum another week on the PGA tour, the dog days of summer are starting to kick in. It's getting hot. It's everybody's out playing their own golf. You're not sitting in front of the TV watching as much as you probably would in the fall or the, you know, the winter when the, when the, uh, they're out in the, you know, Bahamas or whatnot. So it was good golf. It was great golf for being up in Connecticut and, uh, excited to, to move into the rocket mortgage next week. So yeah, I, I agree. there was exciting golf on the women's side of things too. Uh, the women's KPMG PGA championship was this weekend, their major championship. Um, we had basically a two horse race coming down the stretch, which was really cool. Um, shout out to Lizette Salas who finished second. She finished three stokes behind the winner, uh, Nelly Corda, but focus on Lizette here for a second, real quick. Um, she's out in the California area, close friend of ours, uh, T Felt's golf plays golf with her actually a good bit, whether it's out at Rams Hill or just around the San Diego area. So it was cool to see someone who I know, and you know, kind of that has, you know, just ho-hum played like some recreational rounds with one of the top 10 women's golfers in the world, finding herself at the top of the leaderboard and saying, Holy crap, I, I know her. And I know someone who's really close with her too. Um, it was really awesome to see her in the mix. Unfortunately, she just didn't have enough firepower, I think is what it boiled down to, to kind of hang with the amount of birdies that Nelly Corda was making in the final round. Um, but Nelly Corda took it home. Obviously her sister, Jessica Corda already a major champion. Uh, let's talk about this and dive into all kinds of things around the Corda sisters in general. Um, they're making history as the, I think the first sisters, uh, that represent golf, uh, in the Olympics as, as Americans. So they're both going to the Olympics this year, which is incredible. Nelly Corda with the win took over number one in the world. First American to do it since Stacy Lewis in 2014. I mean, there was a lot of holy cow moments when Nelly Corda rolled in that final putt to win this major championship. That's, that's pretty insane. I mean, I mean, one of the biggest things is, you know, getting to, you said they're both in the Olympics. Yep. Both quarter sisters will be, will be representing the United States. I mean, golf's been in the Olympics since, I mean, was the last summer Olympics. And then from that, it wasn't, it was like so long ago. So like the history behind that, just being able to look at your sibling and be like, we're about to represent our country. And I mean, you and I know like, watching the Olympics and all the sports and events and just like these athletes just put, you know, years and, you know, blood, sweat and tears into training just to get to this, to this moment to represent their country and like put everything out on the table and just 
give it everything that you possibly have. And to be able to do that with <laughs> the person you basically grew up with life in, I mean, that's, that's, it, it blows that's just my like mind, jaw dropping. Right? It blows my mind. I think now someone's, one of our listeners is going to have to do this research because this would take a while and I'd maybe just don't feel like doing it either. But I feel like the only other time we've seen a brother sister combo or a sister sister combo or a brother brother combo has been in like the track and field events, maybe, maybe swimming. I don't know. Tennis. I, I really, you had the, tennis, um, the doubles William sisters. Yeah. So definitely there. Good catch there. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of that one, but I mean, it's rare. It's so rare. And, and to be part of not only, obviously, like you said, Rio being the first time golf really came back in like over a century into the Olympics. And then to be the second round, the second wave of, of golfers going to an Olympic event and, and to be there with your sister is just unfathomable to me. It's like, it's insane. It's downright insane. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so pumped to watch them compete because you got to think that if it's coming down on like a Sunday afternoon or whenever they play it, it probably won't be a Sunday. It'll probably be like a Tuesday in like 2 a.m. in the morning since it's in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, but if, if it comes down the stretch and one of them's not in contention, you got to think, man, the other one's like walking right alongside, like cheering. Might the be other even on. carrying the bag at that point. You never know. You never I know. I mean, it's the Olympics. <laughs> Anything can happen. Yeah. So really cool stuff there. Uh, the other two Americans joining her, um, joining the, the court of sisters will be Lexi Thompson and Danielle Kang. So tons of firepower from the U S here's the thing. And, and uh, I, I think a lot of people have touched on this in the past too. When you have a, like a four person team, basically going over, you've got Jessica Corda, Nelly Corda, Danielle Kang, Lexi Thompson, and the same will be from the men's side of things. There's four men going right. The U S is represented very well and would, if there's a team competition side of it, really represent really well. But the Olympics doesn't have a team golf event. It's just individual. And I think, man, if that's something they implement in the next four years, eight years, that will just go over so incredibly well. It'll basically be like a smaller world Ryder Cup if that makes sense, but in yeah. a grander fashion with four people, you've already got it set up perfectly because you limit it to four a nation for a four ball event. I mean, it just, it, it already just kind of screams make a team event for the Olympics. I think four is perfect because you can do a lot when it comes to kind of just little team stuff like four on four, and, mm -hmm. you know, two on two and stuff like that. I mean, there's just, there's endless possibilities of how you can kind of switch things up to really make that team atmosphere with the Olympics. Because I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of team events going on. There are a lot of individual, but mm -hmm. I mean, imagine just like taking like the, you know, the four of them and then, you know, they're standing on number one, holding it, holding the gold around, around their neck. That's going to be. Yeah. I mean, when you look at when golf first came back, and Justin Rose won the men's side of things. He, he joked around and like bit into the gold. But then after the press conference, I remember him saying, he said, you know, I've won major championships, but this is the most incredible feeling to go represent England and win something for my country. Right. I mean, because never before, even in the Ryder cup, have you actually had the ability to put the flag on your back like this at a world scale and, and, and put Olympic, Med I mean, when, especially we talk, let's, let's backtrack on that statement just right there. 
Olympic gold medalist. Like putting golf in that statement, the golf Olympian, like that, that in itself is just incredible to think about because you're a world-class athlete at that point. Just to say that you're Olympian, like the, yeah. The status of that's just insane. Like just watching some athlete walk by like, Oh yeah, he's an Olympian or she's an Olympian. It's just, and then everybody's like, no way. That's insane. I mean, it's so special that Ricky Fowler even got the rings tattooed on his forearm. Like immediately. Like he got the bump and immediately got it done. Yes. Yep. And and it's always funny to me, right? Like when, when you mentioned the word Olympian and especially as I was growing up as a kid, Olympian to me meant like you were almost like godly, right? Like you were just this godlike athlete. And I think it still carries that weight today, which is, is really freaking special. And I think anyone who gets the bump to go um, knows just how incredibly special and like divine that is to be in that group. And it's like, it's just like the way that they train. I mean, look at Michael Phelps, like he's, he was godlike on the, in the <laughs> swimming pool. And then everybody just kind of like, I mean, they, you know, the stories came out about his training regimen and, and his, and his diet and the mm-hmm. amount of calories he was putting in the way his physique was. I mean, that of, to me, that is God, like what they put into, like the work that they put in for some of these, even some of these sports and events where like with track and field, where they're doing like a hundred meters and it only takes a couple seconds yeah. and then they just rip from start to finish. And they are training for years just for that moment. Yep. Yeah, it, it blows my mind. And it, it's just like, it's too, that's the other beauty about the Olympics too, right? Like you say the hundred meters, and then you also have people like in the same vein running like the 400, the 800, the, like the marathon length events in, in the Olympics. And there's so many just different vastness of Olympic feats, right? Like the short, the middle, the long-term stuff, the, the endurance stuff, the sprints, it's just incredible. And that's what makes the Olympics so fun to watch. And, you know, as you flip that story to the men's side of things, the golf side is going to see three new medalists, the gold, the silver, and the bronze medalists from 2016 failed to qualify this year. Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, and Matt Kuchar will not be in the field for the 2021 summer olympics it's wild to think about that yeah that's crazy i mean it just goes to show that how hard it is to get in there i mean you're only taking four <laughs> there's millions of professional and top ranked amateur golfers yeah and and think about this too i'm going to rattle off the names for the u.s on the men's side of things that did get in this year i mean some of them are no-brainers but then you think about the guys from the u.s that might be playing hot right now and still didn't qualify your qualifiers on the men's side of the things are Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Bryson DeChambeau, and Xander Schauffler. That's your United States team heading to Tokyo. I mean, power nonetheless. And I, I, I'm pretty sure Dustin Johnson pulled out, I believe. He just did not want to travel to Tokyo. Um, someone who I'm absolutely befuddled that is not traveling is Brooks Kepka. Yeah. I think I would put him in like out of those four, he was definitely in the mix. If not, he's probably like first alternate. I think it's kind of shocking to not see him in it. But then again, you look at those four. I mean, Justin Thomas on fire. Colin Morikawa hasn't finished outside the top five at a major in like a while. Uh, He's a 2020 major champ. Yeah. 
uh, Bryson DeChambeau. Bryson. You're you're defending U.S. Open champion before Tory Pines, and then gave it a roll down the stretch at Tory Pines until he imploded. And Xander Shoffley, Mister, I'll finish third at every major championship. So fair enough. Hmm. Fair enough. I, I the Olympics, man. Some notables that are traveling for Great Britain. Paul Casey and Tommy Fleetwood. So that's good to see uh, to see those guys in it. Both of those guys are mid to late thirties guys. Paul Casey's kind of reformatted his game in the last like three or four years to bring himself out of, I think a, a pretty good slump. He was a notorious name in like the early two thousands kind of fell off in the teens and then has brought it back here these last couple of years. So it's cool to see him playing well, obviously Rombo from Spain is going to be there. So he'll be a fiery one to watch. You know, the Olympics means a ton to him because his Spanish heritage means the world to him. Mm-hmm. That's going to be fun to watch. hundred percent. So it'll be cool. Uh, Roy McElroy from Ireland, obviously Victor Hovland, who just got a win in uh, on the European tour. Um, he is traveling there from nor for representing Norway. So exciting to see him there. Um, just a lot of good names, man. Shane Lowry from Ireland is going to be there. Corey Connors from Canada. Um, bunch of fun, man. Sebastian Munoz, who obviously the Boston Scott guys are putting some, putting some nice uh, apparel on his back to go to the, the Olympics. So it'll be fun to see what he wears uh, and see Boston Scott inside the ropes at the Olympics. That'll be cool. Um, what else we got, man? I mean, Nelly Corda obviously kind of took the, took the stage away from the LPGA golf this weekend we've covered the olympics we've got josh adona coming up uh, what else we got man it, it was a it was a crazy fun packed week and i mean we got to dive into a little bit of, of the member guests and, and who won out at running deer right the, the club champion that you that, that you said you're gonna get it the third time but third time's a charm the, the third, third time's not a charm <laughs> so your club championship like i said club champion well you know what you probably <laughs> Uh, one, it's weird that we do the club championship, like literally at the beginning of the season, like the heart of like summer. Um, I don't know. That's just the way they do things. And member guests is usually, this is the time for member guests, but besides the point, yeah, it, my, the last weekend was our club champion ship. Uh, I think my handicap actually got big. So they, you know, they bracket it off based on participants, but I said, um, wherever I fall, just put me in the, in the championship plate. I said, I, I really want to test myself. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I played the A before. Well, it's funny because when I first joined, you know, I was around an 18 handicap and I got myself down a little bit to get into the C flight. I won that. Then didn't play for like the next two years Then played like not too long mm-hmm. ago and got into the A flight. I won that. Um, tried to, did the A flight last year again, lost. Um, didn't re, didn't re, uh, regain the title and then this year i decided i said you know what we've been playing with a lot of the guys in our blue group they're all the you know the plus to like mm-hmm. single digit um i mean like basically scratch golfers um they all do a bunch of tournaments and stuff i said you know if i if i put it if i put two good good rounds together if i'm playing well i i think i can i can give it a shot so i you know Signups came and said, yo, put me in the championship flight. The championship flight always plays all the way back, um, which we, like, none of the guys really normally do, <laughs> which is kind of funny. We're like, oh, yeah, you're going all the way back. And it, I mean, honestly, like, we played it before. We played Andy Kay and, and Steve from Messed Out Putters, and mm-hmm. it was funny because 
they decided to give me strokes when it was supposed to be a, a gross event. <laughs> of course, I played lights out. And, you know, we, we took a little cash, but, you know, I, I played it before, but I didn't play it enough to really be comfortable going into it. So I was a little, I think I psyched myself out because I knew everything counted. Um, and, you know, I was like so focused on hitting every shot perfect. Mm -hmm. In reality, all I needed to do was just make my swing and uh, just get it out there. Um, I had some good shots. I, I struggled with the irons throughout the week. Um, driver was okay. Uh, everything was just like, eh, like meh. Like I, I basically, like I said, it was a bad mentality to go into as to just trying to survive. Well, I, so it's funny. We talked about something off the show that I want to touch on here too. Cause I think a lot of people would relate to it as far as just playing in like your local club championship or your even your local amateur tournament, right? Like your local uh, municipal tournament or whatever you don't have to go stupid low. Like I feel like a lot of us get no. trapped in this mentality of like, Oh, it's this incredible event that the club's putting on. So I all of a sudden have to go 10 strokes lower than my average. And it's like, no, because no one else is going that low either. All the other guys that go 65, 66, 67, they, they're playing for legitimate checks week in and week out. They're not playing for the stuff that you and I are recreationally. Yeah. And it shows because no one wins these tournaments at three or four under, or I mean, five or six under, maybe even par wins these tournaments, but typically it's like 140 to 150. Yeah. And, and it kind of goes to show too, when you're playing, like these are, you know, these are all your friends that we're playing with. Like it's mainly our group, right? And most of the time we're playing from the blue tees and these guys shoot anywhere from, you know, 70 to like 76, like mm -hmm. average, which is still really great golf, right? But then you think, like you're saying, like how you expect these guys to basically, oh, it's the club championships. And now one, they're playing a set tee back that they normally don't play. And now you're thinking they're going to go 10 shots lower. In reality, they're not. But as long as you can kind of put like a 150 score together, you know, shoot like anywhere between like 75 and 77 both days, you're going to basically, you're, you're going to have, you're going to put yourself in, in very good contention. Well, and it's funny, right? So it's all mind, it's all mind games. It's it, all it really mind is. games because it's the same course, especially in a club championship. It's the same course you play week in and week out. And when we traveled even, and this is what I was trying to relate to you when we were talking to, you know, about the, the depth of the course for planar all the way back and how much longer it is, yada, yada. And like the thing I kept thinking in my mind was, man, we played Royal New Kent from all the way back and it really it was wasn't, 7, that, yards. It wasn't that long. Like it was obviously number wise, it was longer than anything else we played all year, but it wasn't that long. And I think that's the crazy thing is like, you got to play mind games with yourself, especially in tournament golf of it's just not that hard. And it's, it's easier said than done. Because, you know, you're in a tournament atmosphere and you think, man, this, this is it. This is the swing. It doesn't matter. This is – I have to do everything perfect right now. And that's just not golf. Yeah. It's like I got to basically play like a tour player and hit everything <laughs> perfect. In reality, it's like, okay, you're just going to play. And sometimes actually playing further back opens up the course a lot more. For sure. Where it gives you actually more freedom to swing. And I should have thought – it as that way and i should have went into kind of just basically playing fearless like it's just mm -hmm. another round like who cares like it, it, okay like yeah there's meaning to it <laughs> but you got to go into it like 
expecting to win. Like, you know what? I'm going to go out and beat these guys. I've played these guys before. I've beat them a couple of times. So you're just going to go out and beat these guys rather than my mentality, which was a, a failure, but I learned from it. It was a great learning experience. I'm sitting there telling people like, yeah, I'm just out here trying to survive. And when you put that mentality in it, you're, you're going to rumble. And Whoa. I learned from that. So now I know next year I'm going to go out and I'm like, put me in and I'm going to win this damn thing. Well, and it's funny. You mentioned that. Let me go out next year. I think my biggest thing and, and what I've done or tried to do anyway, I don't know if I've done it yet because I haven't played in any of them. Uh, but since my kind of learning experience, I guess you could call it at the Maryland State AM qualifier where I had it really rolling and then kind of blew up in the last couple holes, play more golf not just play more golf, but play more tournament golf. Right. So I kind of went off the deep end and signed up for every absolute possible scenario of me playing tournament golf, Maryland state golf association, Delaware state golf association. And then obviously my club championships and a couple member guests. And I was like, I'm putting myself in every single scenario possible from now until the end of summer to experience tournament golf. Um, and I, I just think it's a different beast and, and you got to do it. So um I'm, I'm excited to see how I learn, how I hopefully get better and, and take little learning curves from every time I tee it up inside the, inside the ropes, I guess you could call it in a, yeah. in a tournament and atmosphere. I, like I've said too, and I know we've, we've heard this from other like mentors and everything like that. It's like, you know, I said that I failed, but it's not necessarily that I, mm -mm. I did fail. I didn't get the job done, but I learned from it. I've yep. learned from that experience to take it. Like you said, and, and we've actually had, um, a guest on the show, Jake Hutt, he said the same thing. Like, well, why do you stink at, at tournament golf? Well, mm -hmm. it's because you don't play enough tournament golf. <laughs> I mean, it's just self-explanatory. Like, I can go out and play any rec league or rec round that I want, play for a couple bucks, and I, and I kill it. Why? Because I do that all the time. But how many times am I really playing tournament golf? I need to basically yeah. kind of – if I want to succeed at – like you said, if I want to succeed at tournaments – I need to flip the rec golf and play sign up and play for more tournaments. Well, and it's funny too, I mean, right? We, we get into this a little bit with Josh in, in the episode or in the interview uh, up and coming here in just a little bit guys, but the body subconsciously knows where it's at and where it's comfortable and it knows where the hell it's not comfortable too. So if you, if you constantly kind of, you know, groom yourself to be in these recreational atmospheres rather than tournament atmospheres of course your body's going to know where it should be and where it shouldn't be and it reacts accordingly it gets tense when it shouldn't get tense and it gets jittery when it shouldn't get jittery and and, and so on down the line of if you struggle with it inside tournament golf but don't struggle with it with your buddies well plain and simple it's because you don't play it enough usually 99.9 percent .9 of the time i think is what all golfers can kind of oblige to it's why the guys that make a 10 year career out on tour, it's because they get comfortable with it out there. That's all it is. It's mental. It's nuts, but it's mental. And it's why most people call like lifelong golfers psychotic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, trust me. I've had, I have a few people that just, just look at me like I'm crazy when I go off of, about golf and playing this tournament or playing this round, going out and playing again. And, you know, they're just like, man, this guy really loves golf. It's like, yeah, we're, we're just addicted. Absolutely. Well, I know this next guy is addicted to golf as well because he's chasing the dream to be on tour. Uh, so, guys, go follow us at www.enjoythewalkpod.com. Hit that subscribe button at the bottom of the page to sign up for the latest blogs, the latest emails, the latest podcasts, and the latest merch drops. 
As always, you can go to at Enjoy the Walk Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow us along there. So it's where we post most of our content from who we have on the show to where we're playing golf next to where Dante and I are traveling to shoot more videos and more content. So, guys, appreciate listening. Now, next on the show, PGA Tour Latin America Pro and South Dakota, North Dakota Tour member, Josh Sedona. Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We are excited to have a touring pro with us today. We mentioned it, or aforementioned it, I should say, two weeks ago when we had Katie Kuzma from Kuzma Sports on the show. Uh, she represents Josh Shadono on uh, a higher level as far as an agent. So excited to have Josh on the show. Josh, you are currently PGA Tour Latin America member, played golf down in Bama. Uh, you ended your email to us when we set everything up with a good old roll tide. So I'm sure there's a good allegiance down to, uh, to, to Alabama for you. So excited to have you on the show, Josh. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to getting on with you guys uh, since we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Absolutely. Now, it's uh, it's always good to link up schedules. I know you're always on the road, it seems like, the last few weeks, and it might even be kind of just the life on tour as we'll dive into it. But uh, tell the listeners, you know, you, you drove a lot the last few days. Where are you driving to, and, and what are you playing in? Um, so I had just gotten back from the Latin event in Miami and then I decided to head up to South Dakota. So I drove from Scottsdale to South Dakota, which took me three days. I stopped in Colorado and Nebraska and then finally made it to South Dakota today. And so I'll be spending about a month up here playing six events in a month, just three to four day events, two times a week for the next four or five weeks. And just kind of trying to play as many tournaments as I can this summer. Now is like, I see that you're uh, putting a lot of miles on the, on the car. Is that um, more kind of on a financial decision? Cause I know these guys coming up on these, you know, Latin America tours and corn Ferry tours and, and all that. Is it, you know, you have opportunity to take flights or is that just kind of like how you're budgeting to do the best with all the entry fees and travel expenses? Why I chose to drive. Yes. Um, just because I'm going to be up here so long. Um, and the problem is, is we play two events in a row, have a week off, two events in a row, week off, two events. And so I didn't want to fly back and forth. So with my car, I'm going to fly the 4th of July to Vegas and then I'm coming back. But then the second week off, I'm going to drive down my short game coaches based out of Omaha and then he's uh, winners in Scottsdale. So I'm just going to go stay with them for a week and doing it's a three hour drive versus like a 20 minute flight. And then, I mean, like I said, I'm going to be up here for six weeks. So, I mean, time is 120 bucks a day. I mean, it's expensive quick. Yeah. I imagine too, there's a nice personal touch of hopping in your own car, right? To just go get food or, or just to go to a convenience store or something. There's a nice comfort zone of just being in your own car and kind of having that at your, at your expense if you need to go somewhere. Well, you know, I'm still too young to rent a car without paying an absurd uh, insurance fee. I'm only 23, so I can't run a car on my own without paying out the butt for it. So it's, I normally Uber at tournaments. I don't even get a car. So it, it's very nice to have a car. I just went to the grocery store and got food. And normally that would have cost me 20 bucks just to go to the store. Dante, it's so, yeah, wild it's, to me how old I automatically feel when I start looking at these kids yeah, that are you, playing not ta- only corn you Fury, but about Latin age. America tour events. 23, Josh. That's, uh, it's crazy. And it's just, it's, it's, it's awesome because, you know, you look at the young talent that's coming up and you think, yeah, those guys are good, but obviously like, you know, they, they'll, they'll, they'll find their own a little bit later in life. And then you see 21, 22, 23 playing consistently on tours. It's awesome. Um, speaking mm-hmm. of about how young you are on tour, let's, 
backtrack it a little bit. Where'd you grow up and, and where did you really find a love for the game that, you know, so quickly caught on, obviously, to wanting to play it professionally? Um, so I grew up in a small town outside Sacramento, California, called Roseville. It's about 30 minutes from Sacramento, just kind of on your way up to Tahoe. Um, played a bunch of sports growing up, played baseball, basketball, football, golf, kind of anything I could do to stay outside. I just really was drawn to sports, so it's always been kind of a huge thing for me. And then it got down to where going into high school, I was playing baseball and golf. And unfortunately, where I'm from, our golf and baseball are both spring sports. And so I had to decide between which one I wanted to play. And to be honest, at the time, I don't know why I picked golf. I was actually a much better baseball player. Um, But just something about the individuality of golf. I think sometimes with baseball, I would get upset that – no matter how well I played, we could still lose games. And it wasn't always up to me how, whether we won or lost. And so I think that's why I liked golf a little more, just because it's a lot more of uh, on your shoulders. So like, I mean, if I don't practice and I don't do the things I know, I'm not going to play well. And if I do do those things, I'm probably going to play good. And so there's a lot more controllables in golf. And so just going into high school, I started just playing golf. So when I was 15, so from 15 to 23, I've only done golf for the most part. I love that. There's, I know Dante, you played a team sport in college too. Um, I ended yes. up playing golf. So I, I had the same kind of debacle in, in my head. Do I play golf? Do I play baseball in high school? And I ended up just going the golf direction. Um, I too was probably a much better infielder and, you know, long-term at that point in time in high school, for some reason chose golf um, and, and the rest is history. But um, looking at that choice and obviously being in the California area, you touched on a little bit before we, we hopped on the, the podcast it was a, I mean, notoriously Northern California, Southern California, the whole state is just a phenomenal golf region. Um, what was it like choosing golf and then really starting to take it serious from there? You know, how competitive did you get from that point and, and how soon did you realize, Hey, I can, I can actually go somewhere with this. Um, well, so I was already into golf tournaments. I mean, even though I was still playing two sports, but then once I picked golf, I mean, it picked up so fast. I mean, I'm very fortunate from our area. We have, we probably had within the three or four year gap of me being in high school, we probably had 15 kids go to a really good division one school. And then now we have a PGA tour player, multiple corn Ferry tour players and a couple guys that are on Canada that are all from like our within 20 miles of each other. And so we all played junior golf together. And so it was always this big push and pull of who's like the guy right now. Um, and it kind of progressively went down throughout the, throughout the years, but it was always kind of, who's going to be the guy this year. And even the part that always shocks people. So like first tee events typically are to get kids interested in the game and to win those first tee events, you got to shoot 85 or something. We had 69, 68 winning our first tee events. (laughs) And so it was just so competitive. There was no like relaxed tournaments. It was like competitive from the start. Wow. It it was go learn how to be really freaking good or kind of get left in the dust. Yeah, I mean, we had Cameron Champ, Austin Smotherman's on the Corn Ferry Tour. He just won a couple weeks ago. Corey Pereira, I mean, just Bryson. I mean, we had just a hand, so many good players. Justin Sue. I mean, you name it. If they're from Northern California, we probably played together at some point. 
Well, I love that. And then, so, so you take that, you take your talents, you take your experience of, of playing in an incredible nucleus up, up in Sacramento. And you say, I'm going to go to Alabama. What, what was the choice there to, to go out there? Obviously their golf program in the past decade has been incredible. Was that the major pull was just how great the golf program has been, or, or was there some other maybe side events that, that happened that, that got you out to Alabama? Well, so I actually committed really young. So I committed my freshman year of high school. Once I decided to just play golf, I went on a pretty good run the start of my pretty much my whole freshman year. And so towards the end of the year, I committed to a school called SMU in Dallas. And so they had just hired the number one coach in the country. He had just won two national championships at Augusta State. They had Bryson, um, Austin Smotherman, who grew up in my same town, went to my same high school. Um, And they were bringing in the recruiting class above me was insane. The, my class was going to be good. The class behind me was great. And so I committed and I was committed all the way until my fall of my senior year of high school. And then it came out that they had been doing some serious recruiting violations amongst the whole athletic department. And so the NCAA stepped in and said, Hey, we're going to give you a two-year postseason ban. We're going to reduce your scholarships by 50% and all these other things that was, as a recruit, I was like, wow, my first two years are going to suck. And so I decided to decommit and I didn't tell any schools. I was between two colleges that I really liked and I had taken visits with before. And I just, I really thought I was going to go to one of those two and about Two weeks before signing day on a Thursday night, Coach Sewell from Alabama called me and said, hey, Josh, this is Coach Sewell. I've kind of heard through the grapevine that you've decommitted from SMU. Like, is that true? I was like, yeah, Coach, it is. And he's like, would you be interested in Alabama? I was like, you know, I've got these two schools I'm deciding between and signing day is coming up. Like, I just don't know how realistic it is. He's like, well, if you're interested, we can get you out here tomorrow and we can send you on a visit. And it's like 8 o'clock at night. And so – I walked down to my parents' room. I was like, hey, can you guys take me to the airport in the morning? And they're like, where are you going? And so I was going to Tuscaloosa. And so I flew out. That was Friday morning toward the campus, um, practiced and played golf on Saturday, and I actually committed Saturday night. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a whirlwind. And then I signed two weeks later. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, you've heard stories from not even golf, but just, you know, football, baseball, basketball, you've heard high level recruiting stories. And I think that's one of the best ones is, you know, you get a late call and you say, be here tomorrow and you say, okay. And just check it out. Um, what, what was the, other than obviously the facilities there, you know, what were some things that stuck out to you just as the program as a whole that really made that decision easy? Um, I think for me, I mean, I was very lucky. I was a very highly recruited player and had my choice of a lot of the West Coast schools. And so I went to a lot of the big schools anywhere, anything West of Texas, pretty much. And when you go to a school like Alabama at the SEC with all that money and all the resources and everything they have, I mean, it's just not really close, to be honest. I mean, their practice facilities were so much better. Their um, support staff, their training their gym trainers, their athletic trainers, their study halls, their dining halls. I mean, everything was just so far ahead of the Pac-12 and everything else that was on the West Coast that it honestly just wasn't close. And then it obviously helped that they had just – they lost in the NCAA Finals in 13, and then they won in 14 and 15. And so they were already the top team in the country with all the resources and everything you could ever want as an athlete. So, I mean, it was kind of honestly hard to say no. 
I love that. Yeah, they've, they've built quite the record there for themselves. Um, and obviously, it, it seems like whether it's them or an SEC rival in Georgia, um, the SEC just seems to churn out tour pros. And it's it's kind of this just like factory. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, we, we talked about this in school, and we think a lot of the reason is, too, is because when you turn pro, it's all on your own. You have to create that own support staff. But when you go to a school like Alabama or Georgia or any pick any SEC school is they basically simulate that for you and they teach you how to do it, what you need to do, how life's going to be like. And so when you turn pro, you just kind of got to build it on your own, but you already know the path. And so like I already I need I need a gym trainer. I need someone that's going to do my PT. I need someone that's going to keep me in check. I just you know all the pieces. Now you just got to go find them. Yeah, it's like someone's giving you kind of like the the outline to the book. You just got to write your own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so when I turned pro, it was honestly just kind of plugging in the pieces that worked for me. And so everybody's different. Everyone needs different things and focuses on different areas. So when I turned pro, I just found the pieces that worked for me and then kind of took off from there. And it honestly kind of made life easy. I mean, a little easier than co- our college golf was honestly harder than pro golf's been so far. <laughs> You don't hear too many people say that, and it's kind of funny. Yeah, just no. The way you described it earlier is, is I think the reason you and probably a lot of other folks at Alabama, maybe Georgia players and LSU players, like a lot of those SEC schools and, and ones that are notorious for turning out some tour pros year after year is, like you said, it's just that that readiness, that preparedness that you already step out of college and into the pro level with um, is probably why you're able to say, hey, it's been it's been a pretty smooth ride so far. Yeah, and I think, too, this is honestly when people ever always ask me why Alabama football is so good and the the answer that I've always had that a coach told me who was from a different school and was hired on as an assistant, he said the biggest thing that I notice coming to Alabama versus every school is in practice, it's one versus one as hard as we can go, and there's no touch, there's no – it's like it is a game in practice, and it is everyone ones-on-ones. And that's kind of how our golf practice was, too. I mean, we had Robbie Shelton, Davis Riley, Lee Hodges. And, I mean, I was getting my brains beat in by guys that are on tour or number two on the Corn Ferry, number five on the Corn Ferry points list. I mean, I would shoot even par a couple under and just get waxed. And so I was like, wow, I got to get way better. And when I would go in the summer and go play tournaments, I would do really well. But I'd come back to school and just keep getting my brains kicked in all the time. And I think that's a big thing why – pro golf seems so easy now because you go out and you play good and there's no one really kicking your head in every day. Uh, Cause those guys are just so good. Yeah. It's, it, it always amazes me, right? Like you've got like tours, like the G pro tour and the swing thought tour and just different places like that. And you see guys really success succeed at that level. And then even just like a smaller step up into whether it's corn Ferry or Latin America or, or, you know, Canadian tour, you just see them kind of fall to the bottom of the pack because that one little level up from another pro tour, like a mini tour to the corn Ferry level is an incredible leap within the game of golf. And, and to go shoot two or three under one day, but have guys that are consistently shooting six or seven under um, it's just a massive difference. And, and then another step up from there to the PJ tour, obviously it, it's crazy. The levels to which this game con- continues to exceed. Yeah, and you know, I think the hard part now is everyone's so good. I think there's been a huge jump in the last five to ten years from the older guys I've talked to of how good the bottom level guys have gotten. And especially living in Scottsdale, I mean, our mini tour players and uh, mini tour players. I mean, there's guys that have Monday queued and finished top fifteen in a tour event. 
So, I mean, when we go and play these outlaw events or stuff in the winter time to get ready for tournaments, I mean, these guys could top 10 on tour all the time. And there are tour players that come and play them and you beat them or finish close enough to them. And you're like, wow, the margin is so slim now between a mini tour player and a PGA tour player. It's closer than it's ever been. And so it's really hard, I think, over time to stay confident on a mini tour finishing 10th when you're like, wow, that's actually really dang good golf, even though it's on a mini tour. I mean, you just kind of got to relate that these guys are doing the same thing that we're doing. They're just on a different tour right now. With that, and when you have the mini tour players, you're coming in 10th in the first place winners going like 25 under. I yeah, mean, I, I mean, I, I have. Follow. Go ahead. I had one this winter. I shot 18 under for three days and finished 11th. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen these scores on these mini tours and it's, and it's no joke how low these guys can go. And no, like it's, you're crazy. Right, it's, it's the competition that it's just throughout the board. And I think Dalton and I have conversations even, you know, to this day in regards to the, to the PGA tour. And it's not, you don't see like the tigers of the world where they're just one, they're finishing one every time. And it's like anybody can win. And even, you get some of these guys that get a chance for, on the mini tours that get onto the PGA tour, watch out. Like they get their chance. They're, they're going to end up winning these things. Yeah. And I think you get your, like you get your 10 to 20 guys on tour, like your Rory's and your DJ's and your ROMs that are just that good. But then the middle of the pack guys, I think you're, you could just interchange them with any of, with a thousand different people and they would all have very similar seasons. I just think it's so hard to get there now. But then once you get there, if you can sustain it, you can be there a long time. Because um, to be honest, to be in the 125, you just have to have like a pretty solid year. You don't have to do anything crazy. But to get there, you have to do something crazy. I mean, top 25 on the web is no joke anymore. I mean, you basically have to at least a win, a bunch of top 10s, a bunch of made cuts. I mean, it's not very easy. Um, but once you get there, it's honestly easier than getting well, and it's funny too, because it seems like every season for the last maybe three years, possibly four, we've seen guys get those like promotions, right? Like win three times and mm -hmm. get promoted. That to me is insane because of how slim Crazy. the margin is at that level to win like three times in four tournaments or five tournaments or whatever. It just, it blows my mind that guys are still capable of doing that. And then you see him get bumped up and kind of get lost in the mud. It's like uh, that, that, like you mentioned, that margin is just so incredible um, let's like dive into that a little more, you know, from the traveling you've done so far, where have you kind of spent your focuses on tour wise? Where do you have some exemptions or some status at? And, you know, where have you really been kind of knocking down doors? Um, so I graduated a year early from Alabama in the summer of 19. So I moved to Scottsdale in September of 2019, practiced for a couple months, just moved in, played an outlaw event or two. And then I did PJ tour Latin America Q school in January of 2020 got full status played one tournament and I got hurt I hit a pipe underground and it fractured or not fractured it um tore my forearm so kind of they gave me said like similar to shin splints but in my form so I ended up taking a couple months off but of obviously of course COVID happened so kind of coincided with COVID so it was good timing on that at least and then I didn't play again until October played a couple more mini tour events and still kind of dealing with injuries. So I, I have Latin America status, but I really haven't played much down there. Unfortunately, um, I've mostly just stayed in Scottsdale, done a couple Monday qualifiers, 
And so honestly, just kind of waiting it out till Q school for the corn fair, I've never gotten to do it because when I was graduating, I was taking a ton of classes over summer. So I opted out of doing it in 2019, which at the time I thought was a good idea, which it probably was, but obviously with COVID, no one knew that 2020 wouldn't happen. So I've just been kind of waiting for a year and a half, waiting for corn fair Q school to come around again so I can give it a shot for my first time. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Dante, we talked about this a lot over when we were just kind of in our living rooms, you know, stuck and waiting um, of of the ramifications of a lot of these tour pros that were waiting for their chance and thought 2020 would be their year and basically got told, well, you know, pack it up, boys, we'll see you next year. Um, and it was kind of all across the board. And, and we're finally starting to see even Canada get back in the mix, finally, of the, the school up there. But it's like, um, it's wild to me and maybe just you kind of got a little lucky with timing as well with with having the injury and then and then getting told to kind of everyone else is packing it up too so you didn't really lose too much ground I guess in the grand scheme of things um, where what is what is qualifying school like you know for you said you had status on Latin America tour what was that experience like and, and you know how, how did it feel to finally kind of punch through and get that status well, like I said, I graduated in August. I played two terms between August and Christmas just because I was getting used to living in Scottsdale, doing the whole deal down there. And then I went home for Christmas and I left for Q school on the second and I was just kind of there. And, you know, I, I practiced a lot at home to get ready for it, but I hadn't played a lot of tournaments. I hadn't, to be honest, done what I needed to do to be ready for, to be mentally ready for Q school. At least I was physically ready. I was playing good. But get down there, good Lord, I was nervous. I mean, I, it was in Mexico, uh, in Mazalan, which is on the west coast of Mexico. And I brought my dad, who was a firefighter, and then one of his firefighters, uh, he's retired. My dad's retired, but one of the current firefighters that he worked with caddied for me. He played college golf. And uh, just three of us in Mexico didn't really speak much Spanish, didn't really love the food. But we were in Mazalan having a good time. And uh I was really, really nervous the first three days and I played really well. I shot 66, 70, 70. And I think I was in about 10th going to the last round. And then the last round was so much pressure and so nerve wracking that it was almost kind of a calm that came over me a little bit that it was just so miserable that it honestly made me go into like a hyper focus to where it was so hard to think about the next hole because there was so much pressure and nerves that it honestly was kind of, it's kind of hard to explain, but the last round of Q school is probably the most calm I've been in a golf round in a long time. That's, that's wild. And for anyone who doesn't compete, I feel like they just don't know what you're talking about because when you're out with your buddies, there's not, there's never that much pressure over a $5 bill or a $20 bill. And when, when you're putting basically your, your job on the line or you're putting your future of having, you know, some sort of status or some sort of outlook of guaranteed golf for a paycheck for the next year. It's, it's something that not too many people can experience where you're, you're 1% of the 1% that's had to walk down fairways and make putts with that kind of pressure. You know, and I don't think I really grasped how important having statuses and guaranteed starts are at the time, but I definitely, and now about a year in, I definitely understand how important that is now. And so I think I have a little different outlook, but that's kind of to go back with the Alabama thing. Is I think that's the big difference to go play at a school like that is the only thing I can even remotely compare it to would be 
the SEC or the NCAA match play or regional. The final day, we had a one year where we were almost going to miss regionals and we had to play well the last day of regionals. And I had played really poorly the first two days and I actually played well the last day, but that's kind of close, but it's still nothing like Q school. I mean, Q school is definitely the first time when you're like, wow, like I have to play well. It's not just another tournament. Like this kind of determines what I'm going to do for the next year. Yeah, that, that kind of pressure, it just amazes me that, you know, whether it's at, at your level or whether it's even on tour, you see guys get down towards the end of the year at the PGA Tour and they're, and they're you know, teeter-totter in between 126 and 125. Um, and, and to have mm-hmm. that kind of guarantee versus no guarantee at all and kind of getting sent down to in the minor leagues, per se, if you're in a baseball terminology there, it's, it's wild to me. And there's not too many other jobs or professions that can say you have that on the line as you're getting down to crunch time. Yeah. And you know, it's not, I mean, it's nowhere anyone wants to be, but it's just kind of the reality of being a young pro is that's kind of how you got to get there is there's going to be a lot of times where you're like, man, I don't know when I'm going to get another start where I'm going to play again. I mean, there's only so many Matt Wolfs and Victor Hovlins that kind of just shoot right through. I mean, that just doesn't really happen. Uh, there's one guy every couple of years that that happens. So the reality for 99.9% of us for most pro golfers is that there's going to be a time where you got to play well to keep your card or you're on the number or something where it's kind of do or die to some extent on the street like every round like it is your last round in a way yeah and you know that's the other thing i've really learned is that the little things in the early rounds make a huge difference at the end of the tournament and those little things in the tournaments early on make a huge difference at the end of the year so the the two footer that you go to brush in that you miss or when you're too lazy on a whole tee box to go grab another club and you don't, you just try to three quarter one, like those little things don't seem like a lot in the moment, but at the end of the term and the end of the year, those, the difference between 15th and 10th or making a cut and missing a cut by one is so huge that it, I mean, it literally comes down to a stroke that sometimes yeah, those four-day events, like it, it's 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 crazy. Like you said, in the moment, it's almost impossible to contextualize the bigger picture. But when you put yourself at the end of the week or the end of the you know season and you look back and you say, man, if I could have made that little brushing two-footer or you know, if I would have grabbed that extra club. and, and it, But it's, it's almost impossible to contextualize it all unless you've been through it and kind of seen the ramifications of those decisions long-term. Um, you know, talk us through, I guess, those long-term plans. Obviously the goal is PGA tour, but uh, in the next three, five, eight months, you know, other than playing where you're at now in, in uh, South Dakota, North Dakota area, where are you looking forward to play? And, and hopefully, you know, you get some corn fairy starts as well. And uh, where are you looking forward to travel? So for the next month, I'm just playing these six tournaments. My goal, just honestly, just get some good golf I haven't I've been off and on with injuries so I've been just trying to get back in the swing of things so my goal would just honestly just finish the six tournaments make some good money and play some good golf and don't get hurt and then I'm going to take a little break in August just practice and kind of regroup I'm going to move to a different apartment in Scottsdale and then get ready for Q school and so obviously the hope there is to make it to final stage and get some sort of status on the Corn Ferry Tour so at least that sets me up in 2022 to go chase that down because the the corn fairy tour is a whole nother beast and honestly i'm not really thrilled about going overseas again so i would love to stay in america if that would be uh, feasible so that would be goal number one and then 
if that doesn't work out, I would probably opt for Canada next year. Um, Latin America is awesome, but the language barrier is tough. The travel's hard. The expenses are a lot. And it just hasn't been my favorite thing. Um, and so I would probably choose Canada next year um, if I could do it again. But um, just kind of focusing on the fall. I mean, uh, first stage of Q school should be in Scottsdale as it typically is. So it's a course I've played really well at in the past. So I'm excited for that. And then just kind of taking it one term at a time from there. I mean, it's Q school is a grind. It, people don't realize, I mean, they see the four day tournament result, but they don't realize that my prep for Q school starts three weeks out. And even, I mean, in the gym, it starts months out, but for golf, I mean, I start three weeks out of prepping and warming up and working on certain parts of my game, getting my mind ready for it. And it's not just a show up and go play sort of thing. There's a whole lot more that goes into it that people don't see behind the scenes. So what is like the day in the life like that you see? So say like you're four or five weeks out, say you're saying you prep like almost three weeks out before you get Mm -hmm. into like, as you're going like tournament mode, like what's, What's it like maybe like five weeks, three weeks out? Like what is like in the life? So about five weeks out from Q school, I'm probably going to play a couple mini tour events just to get one more dose of tournament competition under my belt. So I'll go play an outlaw event or I'll go play something. And then three weeks out, I will start the third week. I will hit the gym really, really hard. I'll probably do two a days and I will mostly do fundamental practice the following week two weeks out will be a lot of cardio and a lot of functional stuff just to kind of get my coordination up. I notice when I'm not doing a lot of other stuff, but it's hard. Cause like when you're used to being an athlete, you're used to being coordinated and being able to move and do stuff. And when you just play golf full time, you kind of lose that a little bit. So I'll do a little like coordination stuff, swimming stuff to kind of be an athlete again. And then I will start mixing in fundamental practice with playing. And then a week out, I am mostly just doing PT and playing every day. So I will do a tournament warm up, go play, have lunch, practice done. And so it just kind of goes workout, kind of golf and workout, and then just golf the week leading up to uh, the actual Q school. So leading up, like, that's a I mean, that's a lot. I mean, and, and that's great to hear because, you know, people have their speculations on golf. And, and I think people are coming to the realization that it, it's a full time athlete's job and like you're saying right there you're mentally and physically preparing and even you know that last week you're saying you're playing golf are you out there playing like 18 holes a day Mm -hmm. yeah so I got hurt but I was gonna be so like for the last time I went prepped for a big stretch I was my schedule was I, I wake up really early so I wake up at five I go to the gym 5 30 to 6 30 come back make breakfast I go to the course and practice and I will do fundamental practice. So that just means putting drills, chipping drills, swing technique stuff for hour and a half to two hours. Then I will typically go play. And when I go play, I do nine holes of five ball. So five ball is play one ball tee to green. I play one ball, a distance wedge to the hole. And then I have a bunker shot, a chip shot and a rough shot. So part two, part three, and then whatever the hole is. So I have to play each ball counts for a score. I have to play the entire nine holes, even far better. So that's my total score, my par three distance wedge score, and then all the chips are par twos. So you have to chip, you have to chip and putt really well just to shoot even far. And then the back nine, I will typically play a two ball worst ball. So I'll play two balls and do a worst ball scramble. So I'll take the worst shot on everyone. And I'm just trying to shoot uh, even par better on that, which is really hard to be honest. 
Um, and then after that, I will kind of assess what I did for the day and how I did and what I struggled and did well. And I'll work on what I felt like I didn't do all that day. So from when I wake up to when I get home, I wake up about five and I get home at about four or five. And then I make dinner, do some stretching, go to bed. So you're looking at 12 hour days, basically seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there I'll, I'll take a day off and by day off it's, I go to the gym once and I practice for three hours is my day off. I mean, I not, I rarely ever take a full complete day off. That amazes me. Um, just that, I mean, I've always heard of the worst ball scramble kind of deal, worst ball, better ball, but the, the lineup you just gave for that front nine, I was kind of like playing it in my head. Like how good your short game has to be for, for that to stick around even par. Um, that's incredible to me alone. And, and I, you know, whether you achieve it a lot or whether you achieve it half the time, even um, I encourage all the listeners to go try that for two holes, let alone nine holes and try and stick around even par um, that that's an incredible drill. And it, it just kind of cements the, the focus, I think on short game being probably King on, on a lot of the differences between the guys that are maybe shooting a couple extra under par than, than kind of the middle of the pack. Yeah, you know, and I learned it from a coach that teaches on the PGA Tour a lot, and he, I work with him as well, and he has a lot of his tour players do it when they're at home because when you're on the range, it's really easy to groove things, and when you're on a chipping green and you're just raking ball after ball after ball, it's really easy to get in a groove, and even on the putting green too. I mean, you typically, if you're at the same course all the time, I could tell you, like at my home course, I could, you could put a ball anywhere on the putting green, I'll tell you what it's going to do. And so when you go and do these drills on the golf course, it puts you kind of in real world situations and allows your brain to kind of break the tracks it gets on the practice facility. And there's obviously a time and a place to do that sort of thing. But when I'm getting ready for a tournament, I need to know where I'm struggling and what I'm doing well and whatnot and what I need to work on going in. And that game is a really good test of it because it tests my bunker play. It tests my chips from the fairway, my rough chips, my distance wedges, and then I'm actually playing. So there's no aspect of the game I'm missing. And I don't really know any other way to practice that can test every aspect of your game in nine holes. Well, and it just goes back to the, the, the kind of mantra of what you were saying of why Alabama football is probably so good. Uh, you're, you're putting yourself in game like scenarios, right? Like the, the range is great and the putting range is great, but if you don't put yourself under at least a little bit of pressure, as much pressure as you can put your per, yourself personally uh, while you practice there, there's no point in practicing almost at, at some point, if you're just kind of monotonously running through the day, there's, there's gotta be some purpose behind it. And, and that's really, I feel like what that does to a team. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, like, especially I see it at TBC Scottsdale because there's so many pros out there. If you give me 20 balls and I chip them from the same spot, I'm going to look like a PGA tour player. If you give me 10 footer and having hit, I'm going to look like a PGA tour player. And on the range, you hit it like a PGA tour player. So you've got to find ways to practice that expose you of where you're weak. Cause it's really easy to look good at our level when you're practicing and you get kind of a false confidence of, how good you're really doing and it's always about getting better and improving and if I'm just kind of faking my way through practice I never really know if I'm getting better or not because I can if you give me a basic chip I'm never going to hit a bad one really or if you give me a hundred yard target on the range like I'm really ever going to miss the green but when I'm on the golf course and I have a hundred yards and I know it's a part three and I have to 
make a two to meet my quota of being under par for the nine, like there's a whole different pressure than hitting that ball in the range. Yeah, absolutely. I think that aspect right there, which is just kind of a little bit mind blowing to me is what separates the guys who make it from the guys that don't it's exposing those weaknesses and then saying, all right, let's almost double down on it. And let's, let's see how we can expose it more until I get better at it rather than like you said, kind of just finding comfort zone in the things you are already good at and not really approaching those awkwardly bad areas in which you know you need to get better but you just kind of let them in the in the shadows and never really approach them yeah and you know that's why I like going out to the golf course really early so we're fortunate at TPC Scottsdale they reserve the first tee time every day for the pros and if you ask the maintenance workers that see me out there in the morning they probably think I'm a hack because I go out and practice some of the things I suck at and I look like an idiot Hmm. and it's honestly just kind of where you get better. I mean, 50 yard bunker shots. I mean, who's good at that? I mean, go practice those, um, hit cuts on tees, draws on holes, or you shouldn't hit like driver on holes. You shouldn't hit driver, like hit balls in a building. I mean, just trying to like get comfortable doing stuff you're uncomfortable with. And it's, it's hard for anyone to do. I mean, any, anything in life, I mean, we don't, who wants to willingly do something they suck at. So it's been kind of a, game I've had to play with myself a little bit to be okay being bad at something because I've never really been bad at golf but I go practice on things that I would honestly say I'm not very good at and that's why I feel like I've gotten better this year because I've just started doing things I kind of suck at I love that because every golfer knows no matter how confident you feel or how good the game's going going into a competitive round there's going to be a point even if you've got it pretty well grooving most of the day there's going to be a point where you step up on something and you just don't feel the greatest over it something's going to be not 100 percent during that day and and that's where that preparation steps in and especially on your level and even on the pga tour that's where it it, it begins to separate folks who can get comfortable feeling uncomfortable or kind of hit the bad shots when they feel uncomfortable yeah and that's the biggest thing i've seen between the guys that win and lose out here is so a four-day tournament, you're going to have one day you play good. You're going to have two days you probably play decent. And then you're going to have one day where you just don't feel good. You don't play well, whatever. So, like, here's a good – I just drove for 22 hours. My body doesn't feel good. I went out to the golf course today and played nine holes. It was ugly. But I have tried to find ways and shots that when I feel like that, I can still get it in the fairway. I can get it somewhere around the green. And then thankfully, no matter how you feel, you can pretty much always chip and putt about how you normally do, because it doesn't matter if you're tight or sore, like you don't really use a whole lot of moving body parts in that. So if, as long as I can get it up near the green, I'm going to be okay. So whether that's a 30 yard slice, a big sweeping hook, a punch shot, uh, whatever it is, you just got to find guys that are really good and consistently make a lot of cuts. They have a day a week where their game looks awful and they shoot two or three on it blows my mind. Um, it's awesome to see uh, you and I'm sure a lot of folks out there chasing it, but you specifically just committing to it, right? Like it takes a commitment to get up that early every day. It takes a commitment to drive 22 hours in a three day span and, and still get out to the golf course after you get to wherever the heck you're at and go play. Even though, like you said, it's awful, but it swings, it's reps, it's loosening the body to get back out there tomorrow and go do it again. Um, Let's talk some off the course stuff. We've talked a lot about the on the course and how you play and how you practice. Um, let's talk about kind of the relationship of how we, you know, heard about you, found out about you, reached out to you uh, with your relationship with Kuzma Sports. Talk to me about that and, and see how, you know, 
how you guys got connected and, and where you really see Kuzma sports kind of, you know, helping you along the way of, of making your life a little bit easier as you, as you chase down professional events. Um, so coming out of Alabama, I had some options to sign with an agent and everyone I met with, to be honest, at the time I wasn't, I dealt with some injuries in college and I just wasn't a very big name college player. And so I felt like the agencies that had the opportunity to try to sign me, they, Pitched a good pitch, but to be honest, I kind of felt like I was going to get lost in the shuffle. And from some of the other pros I've talked to, being your own agent wasn't overly hard. So for my first year, I kind of did it myself. I booked my own plane tickets. I talked with sponsors. I mean, I just kind of did it all myself. And I was always opening to having an agent, but I needed to find someone who understand, understood my situation and the work that was ahead of them. I mean, it's to be honest, it's easy to be an agent for a guy like Matt Wolf or Victor Hovland or a guy that's playing well and on a PGA tour. I mean, Hey, you want to sponsor a guy who's on TV every day? It's easy. (laughs) And so you got to find someone that understands that at a guy like my level who needs some financial help to play golf, that it's a lot of work. And when I met Katie in Scottsdale, she had just left the agency she was working for and she was working on starting her own agency and her pitch to me was kind of no BS that I know where we're starting and my agency is starting and I want to be the backbone of our agency to be hard work and just no BS. And so I, I really liked that approach. And I liked that she was kind of a realist and understood that there's no, until you get to the PJ tour, there's no easy work. I mean, it's, it's hard to sell a company on a guy that's on a PJ tour Latin America that, Hey, in four years, he might be on the PJ tour. Um, and so she just kind of saw how it is. And I appreciated that she didn't really kind of fluff me up at all. Like she just kind of said how it was. And I really liked that. That's awesome. I know even from our interview, uh, we just got the fact that she is, she's no BS. Um, and, and there's a, there's a integrity value to that of saying, listen, she understands how hard it's going to be too. And she's going to go to, to fight with you in the trenches as it, it gets tougher or as it gets easier, you know, both directions, she's going to be there to, to kind of support and get you through whatever you need to on and off the course. Um, she talked a big thing about family too. And, and just, you know, how much of an outstanding individual you were, um, did that ever come up as far as like another, you know, value to you that you saw in the way she approaches maybe just the off the course stuff as well. And, and, you know, what do you see long-term that relationship being as a, as a pretty good catalyst for you moving forward? You know, she didn't say much about it when I first was talking to her, but now that I've signed with her and, not that she values my opinion or anything on who else she signs, but she's always asked me like, Hey, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of this guy? And so she's very set on working with very good people and good golfers. So just because they're a good golfer and they need an agent doesn't mean she wants to work with them. And so I really like the fact that she only wants to work with really good people. And a few of the people she's introduced me to in Scottsdale have all been very solid people that I appreciate having a relationship with. And so going forward, as long as I'm playing golf, I mean, I don't see why I would ever leave. I mean, it's kind of, for me, it's always been about building relationships more than using people. So I've noticed that over the years, the more you get to know people and build trust in someone, the better the relationship works. And so it's just kind of the same thing. I mean, we've been working together for about two months and we text and talk a lot and just kind of game plan of what's the plan going forward. And so I 
trust her advice and what she's doing. And I let her kind of go off and do it. And when she needs my help, she kind of lets me know what she needs and it works well. I love that too. There is something to be said about kind of steadfast long-term relationships, especially in business and in golf. Um, you know, it comes down to the point of when, when you do get to the highest of levels, you know, who's going to have your back and who's going to be there. It's going to be the kind of the rock set in the ground. That's, that's, you know, been there for the long haul. So um, really excited to, you know, see you guys thriving well in your relationship and um, see you hopefully getting back out there and competing uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, the one thing that never makes sense to me is you get these guys that make it to the PGA Tour and do all these things. And all of a sudden, there's this big switch of I need a new swing coach, I need a new agent, I need a new this. And I don't know why that's the mentality. I mean, to me, someone who's been willing to stick it through since I was on the mini tours and PGA Tour Latin America, if I make it to the PGA Tour, why would I leave that person if they're willing to sit there and be in the crap and when I'm driving to South Dakota in a couple of years when I'm flying on a jet to a major, I'm going to be like, yeah, you're coming. Like I'm not leaving you at home. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's an excitement to that. I feel like it's like the, you, you build up this crew and you build up the family, you build up whoever is around you in the team, fitness guy, coach, sort game coach, full swing coach, agent, you know, you build these people up year after year. And, and then you get that pride of like, kind of, bringing them along and just saying, here's my team. Right. And then, you know, it, it gets a little weird. I would think it for these big guys, when they make swift changes like that to bring new faces into that tight knit community and, and, and say, Hey, well, here's my new guy too. fit, fit right in. I just feel like that doesn't work. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too is, I mean, they see you at your most vulnerable. I mean, they've heard some of the deepest stuff that you don't tell anybody. They've been with you when you cried, when you've, missed cuts, been injured, and just think that nothing's ever going to go well again. And so that just to have that trust in someone just doesn't happen overnight. And that's something that's earned and built over a long period of time. And I just, it's hard to replace once you have it. Um, so it's just, I don't know, it's just one of those things that once you have it, you don't want to lose it. Yeah, it's tough to come by. So definitely when you can, when you can see it right in front of you, um, you got to lock it in and lock it in for a long time. So Josh, I appreciate it really, man. The time after driving all this way and sitting down with us has been a real pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed hearing your story and, and seeing the outlook on the way you play the game. Um, where can people follow along? You know, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, uh, where can people continue to watch your story grow and, and hopefully see you inside the ropes at a tour event uh, sometime soon? You know, so I'm getting better at the whole social media thing is it kind of comes and goes. So I would say mostly Instagram or Twitter. My as Josh J Sedino 97 is kind of my handles um, trying to do better. You know, I, it's kind of a double-edged sword of how much you want to post and how much you want to golf and stay off of it. So I'm trying to be better at it. Katie's helping with that for sure. I love it. Yeah. I know um, we used to have a, uh, a guy that played professionally on the podcast with us full time. And, and he was the same deal. He'd, he'd get on it and post it and say, you know what, I'm gonna go back to play golf. And then four or five weeks later, he'd hop back on Instagram. So it definitely is uh, understandably. So you've got a, a commitment or two uh, on the course and in the gym and whatnot to, to keep your mind. Right. So um, again, appreciate the time guys go out, check out his Instagram, give him a follow. Um, 
maybe he'll post once or twice more just to uh, show us the inside uh, uh, what's going on in his life. But Josh, again, appreciate it, man. Best of luck in the next few weeks as you get back to playing full time um, and best of luck at Q school for the corn Ferry tour. I hope to see you inside the ropes there uh, as we get into the spring and the fall. Dante had a blast. Uh, cannot thank Katie enough for setting this up and getting us into contact. Uh, and, and Josh, thank you for again, joining us as always, guys, you can go to www.enjoythewalkpod.com to check out the latest podcasts, the latest blogs and the latest merch. So as always guys, get out there, carry your clubs and enjoy the walk. <laughs>